electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everyone. I'm Julia Borston, CNBC Senior Media and Tech Reporter, and I'm live right now with the Tech Tech Plus stream here from the Oscars red carpet, which this year is a white carpet. I'm so excited to be joined by three fantastic guests to talk about the future of the movie industry, the future of theaters, and also of streaming, and how all three of those things are working together. This year's Oscars, which is the biggest promotional event of the year for the movie industry, comes at a time when there are still real questions about what the future of the movie industry is going to look like. In 2022, last year, the total box office was down by about a third from 2019, so still down by about a third from pre-pandemic levels. One reason for that is because there were fewer wide releases. The number of wide releases also declined by about a third. So the question now going forward is what does the future hold? Will moviegoers return to theaters um, in higher numbers this year in 2023 as we see more wide releases? So that will be a big test. And the other question is what impact is streaming having on all of this? There are a number of movies this year nominated for Oscars that are coming from Apple TV Plus, Netflix, as well as Amazon. There are fewer nominated this year than in prior years, but they are still a force here in Hollywood for so many reasons. I'm so excited to talk about all this and more with our three fantastic guests. We have Gail Berman, who's the CEO and chairman of the Jackal Group, as well as the producer of Elvis, which is nominated for Best Picture. After I speak to her, we're gonna be bringing in Jackie Brenneman, who's the president of the Cinema Foundation. They have some new data for us to discuss. And then at the end, we are gonna be wrapping things up with Matt Bellany, who's founding partner of Puck and an expert on all things Hollywood and media. But let's kick things off with Gail Berman. Gail, I'm so excited to be joined uh, by you now. Elvis was a fantastic movie. And I think it's really interesting to see how you've had this success at the theatrical, in the theatrical business with Elvis. And at the same time, you've had so much success with a, a series that is on Netflix, which is Wednesday. Um, so your, your hands are in both um, in both worlds and um, with a split of about 70% TV, 30% movies, you certainly have great perspective on the industry. But I wanna start out with Elvis. Did you anticipate that it was gonna have such, um, such horsepower at the box office? And also, did you think it was gonna be nominated for best picture? Oh, well, good morning, Julia. Nice to be with you. Um, Elvis has been an incredible journey. So my expectations for it were always high, but always realistic. And so it's, it's uh, met and or surpassed anything I could have ever dreamt for it. Um, Baz Luhrmann, Catherine Martin, my, my producing partners uh, have been amazing to work with, et cetera. We were all quite nervous about what would happen with the movie in theaters. We were really pleased last June when we premiered it at Cannes and had an incredible standing ovation, incredible positive feedback. Uh, our movie was released after Maverick and Maverick had made a really impactful um, debut in the marketplace. People were coming out to see the movie, that movie, uh, older people and younger people. And that gave us hope 
that we could get an older audience into Elvis because we knew those those people would be the primary film goers. And, and in light of that, we hoped that we would also be able to bring in a younger audience. And the movie was Baz's number one movie ever in the United States. It's done incredibly well for Warner Brothers. We were really, really pleased with the results. I mean, it's interesting, and I think it's really important to know that you're mentioning Top Gun Maverick, obviously a sequel to the very popular Top Gun. But in so many ways, that movie is credited with sort of raising awareness about how much people really do love going to theaters. Do you think that your audience saw trailers for Elvis when they went in to see Top Gun Maverick? Or or what do you attribute to that, that sort of correlation between that movie's success and then your success following it? Well... Um, I have to say that I've been seeing Jerry Bruckheimer a lot in these past few weeks as we've been leading up to the Oscars, and I have thanked him personally for releasing the movie before us, because that movie was so big and had such an impact because it, it, it had a new audience, obviously, that were coming to it for the first time, and it had a nostalgic audience. And because it was so big and it had broken through when everybody was afraid, will anything break through uh, post-pandemic? Once that happened, we were very, very positive that we too could do well. So it, it, it was monumental in that respect. I couldn't be happier to share the um, Best Picture nomination with it because of how incredibly well and what an important movie it's been for this year. Now, Gail, I just want to take a step back. You've made all sorts of different uh, different types of movies in your career. The fact that Top Gun Maverick and Elvis both did so well, another movie that, of course, did well that is nominated for Best Picture is Avatar, The Way of Water. These are movies that are based on either franchises, Avatar and, and Top Gun, or an incredibly familiar character in pop culture in Elvis with with familiar music, very familiar iconography, and a really big budget, um, sort of high wattage potential for the movie itself. Um, do you think that we're gonna see more films in that same category be what Hollywood studios are gravitating to right now? What do you think that the lessons are gonna be that are taken from the success of those films? Well, I do think that there's room in the marketplace for everything, I really do. It's just a gradual uh, comeback. Uh, I think everybody has to has to understand that when you're away from an audience for a couple of years, people get, develop different habits. They're not used to going out. They're still afraid to go out in public places in many, many areas in the country. So this is a gradual effort in moving, uh, in moving the movie industry and frankly, any theatrical experience forward. Also, getting um, getting uh, international audiences back into theaters has also been challenging. I think that IP, inter intellectual property, is always something that studios look for, uh, something to hang your marketing hat on. But um, I also think that when you look at some of the other films that uh, have been nominated, Everything Everywhere is a great example of a, of a movie that uh, is entirely original. Um, I don't think that many people could have thought, oh, that movie's really gonna break through, and yet it did. It, I think it has tremendous support from a young audience. So that is also very encouraging. 
I guess big picture, though, as you think about working with studios, do you think the studios are going to be more willing to take risks on a known IP because of everything everywhere all at once? Or do you think the fact that the likes of Avatar and Top Gun and Elvis are the ones that are really the big performers means that things are going to continue to shift in that direction? I have to point out that um, Bob Iger, just yesterday at the Morgan Stanley conference, he said they have to be careful about not doing too many sequels with some of their Marvel characters. And I was just curious what you thought about that, sort of that dynamic of you know, investing in the big IP um, in terms of the big budgets. Look, I, I really agree with uh, Bob's point. Um, the audience can get cold on things because it, it, it may not be as clever the third time around or the fourth time around as it was the first or second time around. But I will say a balanced portfolio <laughs> in Wall Street and in movies is a really good and better way to look at the bet. Um, you can't do everything as a 200 or $300 million movie. It's, it's irresponsible. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Also, how do you create the new franchises going forward if you're not willing to take risk? So the movie business has always been filled with risk. The entertainment business has always been filled with risk. And you sort, sort of have to balance that. So I completely agreed with Bob's statement. Talk to me a little bit about the theatrical experience. You just joined the board of IMAX. I believe it was this week. It was it was just now joined the board board of IMAX. And I know that Warner Brothers really has talked about wanting to prioritize that theatrical experience because it enables them to have a longer life and generate more revenue from their films. What is your big picture outlook on theatrical? And talk to us a little bit about why you wanted to join IMAX's board. Um, well, I wanted to jo join the board because uh, I really like uh, Rich Gelfand's vision for the company. It's an accessible premium brand, and that's another reason why I like it. I believe in the future of people willing and able and enthusiastically ready to um, gather again for an experience, and I think the IMAX experience is crazy good. I will say that I had the opportunity to see Avatar in an IMAX theater and and experience it. And it was amazing. In fact, I, I really was so enthusiastic when I came out of that experience that I called a lot of friends of mine who are generally cynics or people who perhaps wouldn't go out to see the movie in, in a theater and would rather see it in their living room and, and suggested they see it in the IMAX experience because that is how good it was for me. And all, all of that went into my decision-making to, uh, to join Rich and, uh, and really support and get behind the vision for that company for the future. So before I bring in Jackie and talk more about her latest survey at the Cinema Foundation, I want to ask you a little bit about the streaming business. Um, you produced Wednesday, which was a massive hit for Netflix. The fact that 70% of your overall content that you're producing is in the TV space, which these days really means streaming or linear television. Um, what's your outlook there? What are you most bullish on? And, um, and why do you think Wednesday was so successful for Netflix? <laughs> That's a lot of questions. I will say that the Adams Family brand is alive and well, and I've known that for a long time, having produced the two animated films that predated uh, the live action of Wednesday. And so when I when I went and I, I sought out um, the 
the people who run that estate, it was because I felt that the brand was an underutilized brand that had incredible international appeal and still had a, a fresh new young audience that could be brought to the table with it. The cleverness of Charles Adams' work is really, it's gen generationally um, exciting because people remember it in a nostalgic way and they also have a new audience that's coming to it through Al Goff and Miles Millar's uh, take on, on how to go from what we did in animated space, which they worked on, to a live action. Um, I'm doing a lot in the streaming space and I'm still, you know, I'm still a broadcast girl. I have a show called Grimsburg, which is uh, the second season of it is being made now. It's an animated series that we're doing for Fox and Fox does really, really well with their animation. Uh, and it stars John Hamm. And we're really excited about that. And that will come on uh, not in 2023, but in 2024. Uh, animation takes a long time. Um, so my business is, and, and always has been, as I'm doing live theater as well, sort of across the board. It's what interests me. It's what keeps me going. Um, if I only did one thing, I probably would stop doing it because, you know, it, it, for me, it can get a little uh, stale. Um, but it keeps me really happy. And in, in fact, uh, next week after the Academy Awards, I'll be leaving to go to the East Coast to produce uh, a limited series for Netflix. Oh, so interesting. And my last question to you before we bring in Jackie is this. Netflix has been such a phenomenon. We've seen all these other streamers follow suit. It's hard to imagine that the availability of so much content for very little cost, if not for free on ad supported uh, streaming channels at home, hasn't really impacted the demand for movie going. Are you concerned that now that people have been trained and to have such high expectations for the content that they can get at home, that they just will never return to movie theaters in those pre-pandemic numbers or at those levels? Look, young people are always looking for something to do to get out of the house. I don't even mean to be silly about it. I think that that's a guaranteed audience moving forward as long as we make sure that we're providing quality content for them. As far as the older audience is concerned, a bit more challenging, no question about it, but again, we saw with with Maverick, we saw with Elvis, we've seen with Avatar. You give that audience something to come out for even before it feels completely safe to do that, they will come. And so it's about incredibly clever marketing. It's about providing quality entertainment and also a great theater going experience. Uh, no, let's bring in Jackie Brenneman. Jackie, tell us, what does the Cinema Foundation's inaugural, inaugural state of the cinema industry have to say about what the future looks like? Oh, well, first, thank you for having me on. And absolutely, congratulations, Gail, on your title on Elvis. It's uh, you know, I appreciate it. such, a, such a hit in my home. And I agree with all of your key points, which are absolutely indicated in our Cinema Foundation report, which is that... When the, when the movies are there, the audiences are there, right? So 20, 2022, our numbers, we had about 63% of the, the wide release movies and about 64% of the audience. And on a title per title basis, uh, the movies in 2022 actually did better than their counterparts in 2019. And most excitedly is the fact that this year we've got about 
50% increase in those wide releases, which is due to the fact that the studios, as you as you mentioned, are really reinvesting in theatrical. We had some supply chain issues during the pandemic, but with all of the research, all of the audience return, it is very clear that theatrical is the right place for a movie to debut. It, it does better in a theater if you keep it there and really promote it and market it. And then it does better in the home later too. So it just across the value chain for all consumers, a theatrical release is the right way to see a movie and our, our data shows that we're really back. And Gail, just a quick reaction from you on this. Do you see do you see that playing out? I know that David Zaslav, CEO of Warner Discovery, which released Elvis, very much has that perspective. But do you see any downside or risk? Do you agree with what Jackie was saying? I completely agree with what Jackie is saying. If you don't want to leave money on the table, you better figure out how to do both of these things simultaneously. There isn't uh, a singular answer here. It depends on the, the, the property that you're talking about. It used to be that you only had television or you only had film. We have, uh, we have other ways to distribute products now. We have uh, put it all out at the same time, put it out once a week. The, there are a lot of, lot of um, solutions to what is a, um, a conundrum, how to do it, what's the best way, we'll figure it out. But the key is to figure it out uh, from the audience perspective, because if you get that right, you will uh, benefit, your company will benefit from the money it makes. Anybody who says there's a single way to do this does not understand what, where the business is headed. Well, Gail, that's a perfect note to end on. I'm going to thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. I know you have a very busy Oscar weekend. Wishing you best of luck on thank Sunday. You. But Jackie, I want to ask you to stick around. Absolutely. Um, Jackie, um, I think it's so interesting here. You know, Gail just said there's no one size fits all solution. What was so interesting to me about the distribution models during the pandemic is that all the rules went out the window. Instead of a standard 90-day window between theatrical and a hot home distribution, we saw really ultimate flexibility. There was a period when Warner Brothers did day and day releases for about a year. Other studios have narrowed that. Universal narrowed it to a 17-day window on average. So I'm curious where you see that going um, and whether you think we will revert to something more like that 90-day window, or whether there will be more flexibility um, for studios in deciding around individual movies. Well, so I think first of all, you know, one of the things that was really actually interesting about the pandemic was it did kind of force some experimentation that had been long on the table. There were a lot of guesses, hypotheses about what the best model was, and we found out a few different things, right? We found out that day and date doesn't necessarily work as a business proposition. It confuses consumers. We also know that consumers weren't upset when they subscribed to a streaming platform only to find out that a title that would eventually end up on the streaming platform started in theaters first and exclusively, right? There was some concern there at first from some of the streamers. We're offering our consumers this product and then we're telling them they can't get access. Are they going to be mad? And they, they weren't. In fact, what we ended up seeing was that consumers were far more excited to watch something later on a streaming platform when it had had an exclusive theatrical release rather than being put right into theaters, right? So you can see in the Cinema Foundation's report, um, there's a whole study there on the near the end about which titles performed best in the home. 
And overwhelmingly, those were titles that were in theaters first with a long period of exclusivity. I don't think we know the answer yet to what the right model is, uh, but the right answer should be data-driven, and that's hopefully what we're, right, we're trying to do now at the Cinema Foundation Report. Yeah, it's interesting. I do think that flexibility is likely to be part of it, um, especially once the, once the cat's out of the bag, it's hard to put it back in, or the toothpaste out of the tube, whatever the cliche is. Um, one thing that I found was interesting is that your survey found that exhibitors are planning to invest in cinema innovations in the next three years, other than more comfortable seats, maybe better food. What do you mean by cinema innovations? So it's it's a lot. Our, the, the members of the National Association of Theater Owners, the movie theater owners, uh, not just in the United States, but across the globe are investing in what their consumers are asking for. So uh, we saw a lot more demand for premium large format like IMAX, um, but lots of companies have their own branded experiences. So they're investing in bigger screens, uh, better projection, better sound, definitely seats, of course, those have been very popular, alcohol and premium food, um, and more, right? We've, we see far more exhibitors now investing in loyalty programs, really talking directly to consumers. Uh, we see more, more use of social media to, again, create their own brand and connection with, with their guests. We're seeing a lot more of that loyalty um, and branding. And so that's really exciting. And then there are opportunities as well for exhibitors to invest in alternative experiences. We have in that report a study about consumers who really want to see television premieres in theaters. They want to see live music in theaters. What, we're, what we know is that people want to experience things collectively. And so there's a there's more of a desire for that than ever before. And so while movie theaters are certainly going to always be the home for movies, first and foremost, there is room for us to also offer other communal experiences that our audiences are asking for. Just one more question to you before I bring in Matt Bellany from Puff. There's been a lot of buzz about this idea of charging different prices for different seats within the theater. For a long time, you know, matinees cost less than a, than a nighttime film, but what is your perspective on this sort of variable pricing within the same showtime? I mean, look, it's going to be up to consumers, right? With what we've seen coming out of the pandemic is consumers are overwhelmingly choosing premium experiences, um, right? So we the, they're going to the, the, the premium large format, they're, they're choosing show times that have you know the, the with the recliners with alcohol so they are making those choices so consumers are going to lead the way at the same time there have been you know some opportunities for more value driven options right tuesday historically many theaters offer a value day consumers really like that we did at the cinema foundation a national cinema day where all tickets were no more than three dollars across the country and that brought in over 8.1 million people um, and Paramount did an experiment with 80 for Brady where they offered matinee pricing all day. Um, and so there are lots of different options for different audiences. And I think movie theater owners know their audience is best. Melanie here from Puck. Matt, I know you talk to so many different CEOs in this space. What do you think about the results of this survey? Are you equally bullish? Are you hearing that same bullishness or do you have more skepticism? I got to say, I'm a little bit more skeptical. Things are clearly getting better. I mean, we are not quite up to the 2019 levels of movies in theaters, but the numbers are increasing. And it's it, the most telling stat here is that the 
box office in 2022 was down about 30-ish percent. The number of releases was also down about 30-ish percent. That is not a coincidence, in my opinion. More movies in theaters means more box office. And until these studios ramp up the amount of product they are putting into these theaters, the box office does not have a chance to recover. And even a 10 to 15 to 20% drop could be drastic for some of these companies. Bankruptcies, closures, downsizing. Some would argue that needs to happen, but it certainly will happen if we don't see the product improve in volume. But just looking at the number of films that are set to come out this year, there is um, some some growth expected in the overall number of wide releases. But before we let you go, Jackie, I want to just give you an opportunity to react to Matt's skepticism, this concern that maybe the overall market is going to stay a little bit depressed for some time. I mean, look, I am really bullish. I agree uh, with that with Matt's agreement that the number of titles will really result well, that's what the box office tracks right and we've got as i mentioned earlier a 50 percent increase as of now in how many wide releases the studios the, the major studios are hoping to release this year so that's a big difference so we are really bullish and you know we are seeing even growth overseas on screen counts so there's still room to grow in this industry globally um and even as we talk about screens in the united states we, we're seeing lots of exhibitors here wanting to increase their screen count and continue to invest in screens. So there is a lot of optimism in across the globe and in the domestic market as well. Well, Jackie, we are very curious to see how this year's box office plays out. Thank you so much for joining us, Jackie. We'll let you enjoy your Oscar weekend. I'm going to have Matt stick around so I can talk to him a little bit more about how this impacts the streaming space. <laughs> Thank you both. So Matt, what's so interesting here is we talked to Gail about the success of her Netflix show Wednesday. She's also got Elvis. You have this overall question of the number of films and theaters, but the dominant conversation I heard is an underlying theme across earnings um, this past Q4 earnings season was this idea of protecting the IP in theaters longer. More talk about windowing, um, being more cognizant about separating out when things are available in theaters and at home. What do you think the trend is gonna be this year, I was just asking Jackie about her thoughts on the sort of the new flexibility around the traditional 90 day window between theaters and at home viewing. What's the new normal going to be, do you think? I think everything old is new again. I mean, these theaters are, these companies are retreating from the notion that the customer rules and they want the movies and TV shows to be the most conveniently accessible possible. And movies should be at home the same day they're in theaters. They're walking away from that. And the recognition is, is that the best model for most movies is to give them a robust theatrical release, followed exclusive, followed by some sort of premium experience where you pay to get access to a movie at home, followed by a streaming release where you put it on a service, whether your own or someone else's. And that is a very old time notion of windowing where there would be a long window followed by pay television, followed by linear television, followed by overseas. And I think studios are just going back and saying, we need to make money on this stuff. And the best way to, to make money is to milk each window. Which studio or media giant do you think is best positioned for this? Just yesterday, Bob Iger talked about licensing more content, putting less content directly on Disney+. Plus. Are they best positioned or is it a Warner Brothers that's been working on this 
on this protecting the theatrical window for, for more months now? I actually have a wild card here. I think it is Universal. Uh, I know that's the CNBC parent company, but Universal has an interesting model where they are putting out more movies than any other studio. And they're doing a lot of original movies too, but they have this very short window for most movies in theaters. And then it goes to their premium video on demand platform where they are making a lot of money selling these movies as rentals to people. And they have the advantage of being owned by Comcast which can help facilitate some of those sales. Then it goes to Peacock for a short window, the streaming service. Then it, often they will go to Netflix or other platforms. So they're really discreetly squeezing revenue out of each of these windows while also protecting an exclusive theatrical run. And they've had a lot of success with horror titles like Megan. They had Cocaine Bear a couple of weeks ago that are theatrical hits, but will probably end up making most of their money on home video. And you mentioned that that Universal, which CNBC's parent company, thank you for doing that disclosure, has the advantage of having more original IP. I mentioned earlier that Bob Iger talked about not wanting to overdo it in terms of sequels and threequels. But at the end of the day, the familiar franchises, that's what has the biggest box office performance. What direction do you think things are going to go in? Is it going to be more lower budget movies or is it going to be simply more Top Gun or Avatar sequels, that that, that type of film that dominates? I, I think the trends we saw pre-pandemic were towards sequels, IP-driven films, proven hits, franchises that can be you know, broadcast around the world. Disney's the leader there. We're going to see it. I mean, he Iger mentioned it in his comments this week. Just look what they do with The Little Mermaid in, in the summer movie season. That is going to be a massive hit, and it's based on legacy Disney IP that has been reinvented and will have an exclusive theatrical window, a long one, then it will go to Disney Plus and they will be able to monetize it across the Disney flywheel. They are the best at doing this with the biggest IP and I just don't see them backing away from that. I agree with Iger that they probably milked some of these Marvel Marvel characters a little bit too much doing a, you know, fourth Thor, doing a third Ant-Man. They need to freshen it up a little and it's nice to hear him say that. But they're not going to back away from the overall business strategy, which was which is very well-known IP, executed at a very high level, and deployed across the Disney flywheel. So you gave a shout-out to NBC Universal, part of Comcast, NBC's parent company. You gave a shout-out to Disney. One thing that's changed, though, for both of those companies, as well as Netflix and every other company that's going to be represented here on Sunday night, is this idea of investing in content. All of them said that they're going to be thinking about pulling back their investment in content and far more focused on profitability. How is that going to change things going forward? And do you think that they're going to all be pulling back the same degree or will we see more dramatic changes in some studios rather than others? I think that's a good question. I think all the studios are pulling back and reassessing their content spend. The era of chasing Netflix to the most volume and opening a fire hose of content on the consumer and just praying that subscribers to your streaming service go up, that is over. They are all being evaluated now on metrics like profitability, free cash flow. That is why they are all talking about this because Wall Street is looking to hear them say that. And it's going to translate into fewer projects, less money to talent. It's funny to hear Ari Emanuel, the CEO of Endeavor, talking about how he hasn't noticed any decline in star salaries. Well, I think maybe at the top, top level, that's not happening. But the rank and file talent is absolutely being squeezed right now. And that's going to happen for the next 
you know, foreseeable future as these companies pull back. And we're almost out of time, but I have to ask you about the writer's strike, which a lot of people have speculated to me is going to happen, although it's unclear how long it'll be. Do you think a writer's strike is going to happen? A writer's strike tends to be a little bit more of an inside baseball thing here in Hollywood, but it does have big picture implications for the industry. What's your prediction and what do you think the impact will be for the media giants and the tech giants like Netflix? I actually do think there will be a writer's strike. I don't know how long it will last, but all of the signs here, the writers feel that they have not been kept up during this you know, complete run up in content. They're getting paid less. They're getting shorter orders. They, there's a lot of uh, fundamental issues with the streaming economy that the writers have not participated in. And the studios are all crying poverty because their stock prices are in the toilet because there's been this correction after you know the, the streets stopped valuing subscriber growth. So those two forces are coming together at this time. And I just don't see them resolving this before the May 1st deadline. And it will impact content. You know, there's been a lot of stockpiling in advance of this. And you know, the streaming services are better positioned because they have this global content engine that could step up here. But if this drags on throughout the summer, we will start to see the production schedules impact what is actually coming to the consumers. And I think you make a very good point. The writer's strike is about for people who are part of the WGA here in the US. The fact that Netflix has so much international content that's not just viewed overseas, but is also viewed here does seem like a big advantage for them and some of these other big global players. Um, one thing I have to ask before we wrap it out, you know, Matt, we've both been covering this industry for a really long time. Two strikes ago, the writer's strike really precipitated the rise of reality television. And the fact that there were no scripted series really pushed the networks into um, unscripted, the, the sort of unscripted business. What do you think the implications could be for the business if there's a writer's strike, could it push it more into one area or the other? I don't expect there to be a big adoption of AI just yet. Maybe for the next writer's strike, we'll have uh, robots writing scripts instead of writers. But what do you think we could see in terms of the ripple effect on the media giants? If this drags on, I think the unscripted business will absolutely benefit. And there will be experimentation in that world that could lead to hits, just like it did in the strike of 2007, 2008. I think foreign content will also benefit because if there are no new American shows, you're more likely to check something out that Netflix is feeding you on uh, on your algorithm that comes from non-WGA foreign uh, uh, writers. And also, I think that the studios could use a strike to end some of these onerous talent deals that they have signed over the past three to four years. Some of these writers are making extraordinary amounts of money on overall deals where they are tied to a studio and the studios might just use the force majeure clauses of a strike to say, you know what, we're not doing that deal anymore. We're going to clean house here. So it could end up that a lot of very prolific talent ends up losing their deals because of this strike. Yeah. And we've seen some major talent deals, not just at the traditional studios, but also at the likes of Netflix. Um, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens and also to see what happens on Sunday night. Matt, I have a feeling that I will see you here at the Oscars. And in the meantime, thank you so much for sharing your perspective with us. I always look forward to reading Puck News and getting your insights there. And we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you to Gail and to Jackie. I'm Julia Borston reporting from the Oscars, the white carpet this year. 
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.